you for tuning in to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today, we'll be talking to my Morehouse brother and dead spin sports writer, Karin Phillips. But before we get to Karan, I wanted to talk about President Biden's CNN Town Hall this week, specifically his comments on the student debt relief. Let's play two clips on Biden's response. Student loans are crushing my family, friends, and fellow Americans. Me too. (laughs) The American dream is to succeed, but how can we fulfill that dream when debt is many people's only option for a degree? We need student loan forgiveness beyond the potential $10,000 your administration has proposed. We need at least a $50,000 minimum. What will you do to make that happen? I will not make that happen. It depends on whether or not you go to a private university or a public university. It depends on the idea that I say to a community, I'm going to forgive the debt, the billions of dollars of debt for people who have gone to Harvard and Yale and Penn and schools, my children. I went to a great school. I went to a state school. Um, but is that going to be forgiven rather than use that money to provide for early education for young Uh, children who come from disadvantaged circumstances. But here's what I think. I think everyone, and I've been proposing this for four years, everyone should be able to go to community college for free. For free. That's that's cost $9 billion, and we should pay for it. And the tax policies we have now, we should be able to pay for it. You spend almost that money as a break for people who own racehorses. And I think any family making under $125,000, whose kids go to a state university they get into, that should be free as well. I understand the impact of the debt, and it can be debilitating. And I think there's an old, a whole question about what universities are doing. They don't need more skyboxes. What they need is more money invested in, 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 in making... So that's why I provide, for example... $80 billion, $70 billion over 10 years for HBCUs and other minority-serving universities because they don't have the laboratories to be able to bring in those government contracts that can train people in cybersecurity or other future uh, endeavors that pay well. But I do think that in this moment of economic pain and strain that we should be eliminating interest on the debts that are accumulated Number one and number two, I'm prepared to write off the $10,000 debt, um, but not 50. Mr. President, let me ask you. Because I don't think I have the authority to do it by sign of the pen. So I think a few things here. First, I want us to understand the politics here of saying no to $50,000 in debt cancellation and counseling in terms of people acquiring debt by going to elite institutions like Harvard. Now, obviously, there are lots of people who attend schools that aren't Harvard who accumulate more than $50,000 in debt. But the political line he is drawing here reflects a recognition on his part that broad student loan debt is not as popular as it is on Twitter. And he hits an easy cultural target in Harvard by making the ask itself one that is less attractive politically than money to HBCUs and free community college. So he paints the decision to cancel student loan debt is a difficult choice where some compromise is possible, but he takes $50,000 off the table and tells you why he thinks $10,000 is doable. Even if I disagree on the policy, which I do, 
That's the politics. And he's playing them as he sees them in that $50,000 of debt forgiveness is coming from corners of the electorate that he thinks he can say no to on primetime television. And he's probably right. The number of people who will make canceling $50,000 or more in student loan debt an issue in 2022 and 2024 and stay at home because of $10,000 of debt being canceled instead of $50,000 of debt being canceled is probably small compared to the general election electorate. So that's the politics. But on the merits, the idea that he can only only forgive $10,000 by executive action, but has to go to Congress for $50,000 simply isn't true. There's no line legally that's crossed at $10,000 as a legal matter that wouldn't be crossed at $50,000 in terms of canceling student debt through his executive authority. As lots of people have made clear for some time, the president's executive authority under the federal law called the Higher Education Act is extensive and gives his secretary of education the authority to reduce or cancel federal student loan debt in any amount they see fit. But there's no difference in the law regarding amounts that have to go to Congress and what the president can do. But what President Biden is doing is drawing a line politically. He'll do $10,000, but he's got other higher education agenda items like free community college and money to HBCUs that play better politically. And if you want $50,000, get Congress to do it and he'll sign it. I've got plenty of student loans and I have $100,000 worth, so I want them all canceled. But I can pick up what the president is putting down. And while some of his rationale is bogus, the politics are clear. And that's that on that. Now on to our conversation with my brother, Karn Phillips. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on Cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Listen closely. That's not just paint rolling on a wall. It's artistry. A master painter carefully applying Benjamin Moore Regal Select eggshell with deftly executed strokes. The roller lightly cradled in his hands, applying just the right amount of paint. Hmm. It's like hearing... Poetry in Motion. Benjamin Moore. See the love. Man, thank you for joining the Bakari Sellers Podcast. What's going on, my brother? How you feeling today? I'm feeling good. Trying to stay warm. Happy to be here. Where are you located right now? I'm in Chicago. It's uh, oh, sh- you used to this then. It's uh, it's uh, it's the North Pole outside right now. <laughs> it's brisk. It's brisk it's, out there. It's below brisk. It's, uh, <laughs> it's ridiculous. That's what it is. Look, talk to me about that hat you got on, man. How did you, uh, how, you know, Morehouse has a deep history in sports and athletics, one that's not told often, but here you are as one of the preeminent sports journalists and you got your start at it, not just in HBCU, but at Morehouse College. Talk about that. Well, you know, we come from the era of, of the unspoiled ones, I like to say where we didn't have all of the fancy bells and whistles that the students now have. It well, was you, a, sound, you sound like an old man right now. Because we are the old men now. <laughs> uh, um, we are those guys that we used to look up and say they're old. Uh, look, I don't run from being the, the old angry man on my yard yelling and fussing <laughs> at kids anymore because it's actually true. But, it's, it, you know, it's, it's, it's contextual as well. 
Because look, we, we didn't have a, my senior year, as I was getting ready to graduate, my program chair brought me in his office and was like, I got something to tell you as he was signing my graduation paperwork slip. You remember that, that, that slip you got to run around the whole AUC to get signed. And he was like, just to let you know, we're starting a sports journalism concentration next year. Like, I'll never forget the day Dr. Barksdale told me that. Mm. And I was like, what? And so he looked at me and was like, so you wouldn't have been an African-American studies major if we had that? And I was like, hell no. <laughs> because I spent my entire senior year at Clark. Every day I was on that campus taking a class or interning at uh, WCLK, the jazz radio station, because I was trying to do anything I could to get into media landscape. I had uh, radio internships, too, while I was in undergrad. I was doing a TV internship for the Atlanta Association of Black Journalism um, television show In Contact up at WSB-TV Studios. I was doing any and everything I could to try to figure out what I wanted to do as well as like writing for the Maroon Tiger School newspaper. Mm-hmm. So back then, you were mostly an English major and I was the cat in the history African-American studies department because that was the major that gave me three classes and nine credit hours to take anything I wanted to that went towards my major credits. And I was like, okay, this is a way to, of course, learn about my people, but take these classes at Clark that I need that won't keep me here extra semester because I don't have enough money <laughs> to be a, like, a fifth year senior. I'm, I'm speaking to the, I, this is the choir talking back because I was yes. an African-American studies major with Dr. Barksdale exactly for the same reason because I needed to be able to have something that was inter- interdisciplinary for that time that I thought I was going to be a doctor. Which right. didn't didn't work out. Look, you cover the intersections of race, culture, and sports as well as anyone. So talk to me about what helped shape your sensibilities and your sense of responsibility around getting it right on the intersection of race and sports. Um, I grew up in a very black-ass household. <laughs> um, between the way I was raised, uh, my mom was an educator. And in the summer when she made me do uh, times tables cards to learn my multiplication, I was also doing like black history fact cards. <laughs> so she made sure she was going to teach me all the stuff they weren't going to teach me. My dad was like a member of the nation of Islam for like three weeks. And then he quit because he missed bacon and stuff. Um, he was tired of eating bean pies because he missed sweet potato pies. But my mom like grew up in the shrine of the black Madonna um, in oh, college wow. in BCN. And, and changed their name and things of that matter. And then also like going to Morehouse. Cause the thing about going to Morehouse was that coming from Saginaw, Michigan, where it's a certain type of demographic and social. Sag nasty, sag nasty. All day for black people. When I got to Morehouse, I was meeting like rich black people. I was meeting Republican black people. Mm-hmm. Um, I was meeting black people that I didn't know existed. And one day it dawned on me that if we talk about, you know, six degrees of separation, any walk of life you can have as a black person in this country, from the bougiest of bougie to the insane poverty, like my father grew up in, where it was 11 of them in the house, but it was more rats in the house than them. I knew someone between where I grew up and where I went to undergrad at that was one separation away from a black experience. And not just knew them, was close enough with them and had the relationships to understand what it was like. And when you get that type of education and that background and you're listening, when it's time to get to a platform like this and you not only studied it and been black, but also know these 
these people who've been in these situations that you haven't, it gives you a different sense. And you also understand um, the weight that comes with that because you are now, you're the person that gets to tell the story. But, you know, as a black person, we know that not me and us get to tell these stories. So you have to tell it right if you ever want someone to come behind you and get these same opportunities. It's the burden of the cross we bear. Look, I want to run through a few of your pieces because you've been on fire lately. And I want to give our listeners a sense of what they've been missing if they're not been reading your content. Now, our first guest on the show was Deshaun Watson. And I'm a huge fan of him as I hate Clemson, by the way. But I'm a huge <laughs> fan of him as a player, as well as the stand he's taken with the Texans. And you wrote a piece called Racism is Ruining the Houston Texans. Unpack that. And why is Deshaun Watson standing his ground the right thing to do? Because a year and a half ago, two years ago, Deshaun Watson wasn't. Um, he was anti all of this. I remember pulling that clip from that sit down interview he did with the undefeated. I've even talked to Quincy Avery about this. Quincy's um, been on I, the show. Yeah. And I went back and found that clip and posted on Twitter. I think it was over a year ago. Cause I was like, look, I would never forget this. I hope Deshaun like gets it one day because I thought that interview and that quote he gave was a pivotal moment to where we were either going to look back in five years and watch the maturation of a Deshaun Watson, or we were going to look back and be like, yeah, we saw this five years ago where this was headed. And something happened this past summer. Some light went off in Deshaun Watson's head where he has thrown up his hands and been like, all right, screw it. I'm, I'm not sitting things out. I'm going to use my platform. I'm going to speak up from him being out in the marches in a protest this summer. And even just how he's, he stood up to the Houston, Texas organization. And with everything that's happening right now, and like racism has destroyed that team from how they went through their general manager process for hiring, the head coaching process for hiring, giving Bill O'Brien all that power to let him get rid of, of Hopkins. Mm-hmm. Now JJ White is gone, and now you have a pissed off QB. Look, we will never forget the inmates are running the prison from Bob Big oh, the former uh, owner. Another, another South Carolinian. Exactly. And now his son is running the program. And, and, and running that franchise. And it's like, look, everything that the Houston Texans have destroyed or messed up or been terrible at the last two, three years, you can draw a direct line to racism and how it has put them in this position to where, look, a lot of teams in the NFL and a lot of people in our society would rather lose money and suck than put black people in positions of power. And no one exemplifies that the most in the NFL right now than Houston, Texas. Let me ask you this. I'm going to add Brian Leftwich to the community of black offensive minds that aren't getting head coaching jobs in the NFL. Mm-hmm. And you have a piece you wrote about Eric Bieniemy, where you feel like he's been taking the high road and giving a lot of coach speak around why he hasn't gotten a head coaching job yet. As someone who follows the leagues and talks to these folks in these organizations, what can the NFL actually do about this? Because when I see the guys the Eagles hire, for example, and hear him talk. There's no way you can think this guy is better than Leftwich or Enemy or Todd Bowles, for that matter. What's going on here? It's not on the league anymore. And no one hammers the league more than I do. Like, I, I've had people tell me who've worked for the league, like, yeah, like Adele and some of the execs know who you are because I have just hammered them for years. But this isn't on Roger Goodell and those guys anymore because – he can put all of the, 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 the Rooney rule, which we know is a complete joke now. We got the Fritz Pollard alliance. They've come in. They can do all they can do. But at some point, it's on the owners. The owners make the hires. What do you do as Roger Goodell 
when the Jaguars hire Urban Meyer. Now, look, from a football standpoint, we know how great Urban Meyer is. But let's not forget why he left his last job. And then as soon as he builds his coaching staff, he has to basically fire or a guy quits 24 hours after we found out he got hired because of the person that he hired. Like, there's nothing Roger Kandil can do to stop that. This is all on the owners at this point. This is on the Jerry Joneses and all those guys who are just like, look, we're not going to do this. And and being from Michigan, like, I always like to bring up, like, the Lions. Well, I think it was 2017. Martha Ford, the former owner who stepped down a couple months ago, there was a report from the Detroit Free Press that she basically walked in the locker room and told the players, look, I'll give y'all money if y'all stop kneeling. Like, she literally offered them hush money to stop kneeling. The owner came down into the locker room and said that. So there's nothing a GM, a protocol, a rule the commissioner can do because the commissioner is paid by and works for the owners. This is on the owners in NFL front offices. And so while every year in every Super Bowl, we're talking about why aren't there enough black coaches? Why is why didn't Byron Leftwich get, get an interview? Interview. <laughs> why has Eric Bieniemy had at least 13 interviews over the last three years? Why does this keep happening where the Lions just hired a dude who said in his opening press conference he wants the team's gonna bite you in the kneecaps? Or what about the what about the dude who didn't have on a suit? Exactly. So, so the ownership dressed down so that he would feel comfortable, but they say the enemy is a bad interviewer. Exactly. What does that mean? Like no, I, no one knows because no one's actually given us an example or a video clip or an audio tape of how a bad or a good interview goes. But we just know these really sorry white dudes keep getting hired and they're bad coaches. We can tell by their records. So <laughs> it's on the owners because it's literally nothing else that Cadell could do. And that is the only thing that I will defend him on. But until the people who write all the checks mm-hmm. want to give us an opportunity or a chance or, hey, they're like, look, let's win instead of being like, let's lose and still be all white. <laughs> Nothing's going to change. I wanted to get your reaction to the comments from Draymond Green this week about double standards between organizations and players in terms of expectations around professionalism when teams and players want to go their different ways. Here's a clip. Andre Drummond before the game, uh, sit on the sideline, then go to the back and then come out in street clothes because a team is going to trade him. It's bull****. Because when James Harden asked for a trade and... No one's going to fight back that James was dogging it his last days in Houston. But he was castrated for wanting to go to a different team, and everybody destroyed that man. And yet a team can come out and say, oh, we want to trade a guy, and then that guy is to go sit. And if he doesn't stay professional, then he's a cancer, and he's not good in someone's locker room, and he's the issue. Because as a player – you're the worst person in the world when you want a different situation. But a, but a team can say they're trading you, and that man is to stay in shape. He is to stay professional. And if not, his career is on the line. At some point, this league has to protect the players from embarrassment like that. Anthony Davis got fined, I think, $100,000 or something like that for demanding a trade publicly. But you can say Andre Drummond is getting traded publicly and we're looking to trade him publicly and he's to stay professional and just deal with it. 
But then when Kyrie Irving say, oh, my mental health is off, everybody go crazy about that too. Do you not think that affects someone mentally? At some point, the players must be respected in these situations, and it's ridiculous, and I'm sick of seeing it. Now, you are a sag, nasty guy like Draymond, <laughs> so I'm sure you agree with him. But why are the folks pushing back on Draymond full of shit? Because, you know, as you see, that Saginaw natives, we, we don't bite our tongue at all. True. Uh, but Draymond nailed it because that double standard has been alive for, for decades, and we've seen it. And I, I wrote about something similar a couple of weeks ago with uh, the Jackie McMullen situation with Kyrie Irving. And we found out, you know, she thinks, and she told Kyrie Irving that players are property of the teams and the owners. Like, she literally said this. There's just this mentality in sports between players and owners and, you know, and Draymond. I love the, what Draymond said because he said it from a viewpoint to where even if you don't like it, you have to accept it because he's in that role and he's experienced himself and he's seen teammates and his colleagues experience where they think they can do whatever they want to the players because they can pay all this money. But when the situation is, is flipped around and James Harden, is just like, look, I'm done. I'm out. <laughs> There's yeah. nothing y'all can do. He, he dogged <laughs> it. He dogged it as, 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 yes. as, as we know. There's nothing I can do, but I'm out of here and I'm leaving. And they did, they did Anthony Davis the same way. I would never forget that game. Anthony Davis showed up to one of his last games in New Orleans with a T-shirt that said, that's all, folks. It had the Looney Tune saying on it. And a couple of weeks later, Anthony Davis was gone and people went in on Anthony Davis and said, oh, him and Rich Paul are messing up sports. They're trying. This is an agent and a player with too much power. When I watched the finals in the bubble last summer, nobody was mad at Anthony Davis then. It was, oh, this is, this is a great young player getting his first championship. The sky's the limit for him because when greats win their first championship, they take it up to a new level. But everybody forgot all the stuff they were saying. So that, that's what Draymond was getting at. Because, and this is also a societal problem. Like one of my colleagues over at Deadspin, Donovan Dooley, wrote on this and, and how it affects us in society. It's the same way between corporations and franchises and employees mm-hmm. and players and teams and sports, especially when the ownership and the people who cut the check look one way and the people who are the workforce and the players look like us. You know, I, I was, uh, I, we have an episode coming out with Andy Young next week after this one airs. But one of the things that I recounted that Ambassador Young said is that now uh, we call and we finally are recognizing poor workers in the working class individuals because we call them essential workers now. Mm-hmm. And the pandemic made us actually realize that they are there and we need them. Not us, not Andy, not you, not me per se, but but those individuals that you're talking about. Maybe there will be a moment of awakening. I doubt it. But maybe there'll be a moment of awakening from league officials. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. No matter what you're looking for in a non-alcoholic beer, there's only one name that has it all. Athletic Brewing Co. 
Full flavor? It's athletic. Huge variety? It's athletic. Award-winning styles you can get online, at the bar, or the grocery store? It's athletic. In fact, when it comes to amazing non-alcoholic beer, there's no question. It's athletic. Ask for it and find out. Go to askforathletic.com to find your closest retailer today. Near beer. Hey, welcome to Ikea, where even this desk is circular. Huh. How so? Looks pretty rectangular to me. It's because we're always looking to repair, reuse, and we love our products, like buying back your IKEA items for store credit, or shop our as-is section for great deals. You can even order free spare parts. Get on the circular path for a more sustainable future. Still a rectangle. Get started at ikea-usa.com/circular. Visit ikea-usa.com/circular for as-is information and buyback and resale terms and conditions. Spare parts not available for all products. You write a lot about black quarterbacks. Um, so I wanted to talk to you real quick about Justin Fields and Kyle Wilson. Wilson feels like the great white hype here when we're talking about a guy who can only put up 17 points against Coastal Carolina. But people are <laughs> people are talking about him being picked ahead of Justin Fields. Am I missing something here? No. Um, this is this is what happens. Let's not forget that this is a league where Lamar Jackson the youngest MVP in league history it was the last, the last pick in the first round. round. Yes. He remembers I, that. He, yes. he remembers. I, I wrote a column about the New York Daily News when that happened. And I wasn't saying that Lamar Jackson was the best quarterback in the draft. I was saying that, and I caught so much heat for this, and it was so hilarious when it happened, because then six, eight months later, when he started playing, everybody shut up. Uh, and the piece was entitled, if Lamar Jackson was black, he'd be the number one overall pick. Because if a white dude was doing what Lamar Jackson did his last two years at Louisville, he would have been on every magazine and he would have been the guy that was first. And I'll never forget going into Lamar Jackson's junior season because people forget that he won it as a sophomore, his second year starting his junior season. And he's the reigning Heisman winner. ESPN and magazine had Sam Darnold on the cover. Sam like Darnold's terrible. They literally had <laughs> Sam Darnold on the cover of their college football preview. Sam Darnold is, is terrible. Terrible. Ex- exactly. Now let me uh, let me back up. Let me back up. Sam Darnold is talented. He also I don't know how good he can be because people will criticize me for that statement. I don't know how good he can be because he had to work under Adam Gase, and Adam Gase is terrible. Yes. Let me give Sam Darnold a break to see how he operates under somebody else because we do know his coach was trash. Continue. Yes. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> yes. But look, look. There there are things about Kyle Wilson that I actually like, but I. Someone asked me a couple of months ago, like, oh, do you think he's in that in that top three conversation for quarterbacks with Sunshine? That's who I call uh, Lawrence because that's exactly who he looks like. Justin Fields. And I was like, yes, like he's a white quarterback from BYU that has a history of sending white quarterbacks to the NFL. And I was like, he has a coolness about them. He's the cool white dude with blonde hair with the ninja bandana. Um, he puts up numbers. He plays in a wide-open offense. Like, those guys will always get a look. So I'm not surprised. Now, Justin Fields, that last time we saw him, we know he was beat up. He was bruised. Yeah, but he played again. He played and against. And he played against a team that should uh, be in the yeah. NFL. <laughs> he, played against, he played against the, the NFL G League out there. I mean, it, it's a – yeah. I, exactly. I, I hear you. Yeah. But, like, yeah, no, shit, Fields um, should be getting his shot. Of course, Lawrence is up there. He's probably going to go first. But I'm not surprised that Wilson's up there at all. The thing that always the most interesting thing to me about Justin Fields is that how every time I watch him play, I just laugh at the fact that 
that guy shouldn't have played a down of football at Ohio State. It's Georgia's. <laughs> What did Georgia see? Wasn't racist. What did what did from over Justin Fields may be one of the weirdest decisions I've ever seen in my life. And by the way, I got Zach Wilson as the fourth best quarterback coming out because Trey Lance from one of the Dakota states, North Dakota State, is a complete and utter animal. So that's just where we are. Look at the. I I got to go to this real quick. This is something that I know is on your radar. But how bad is college basketball this year? And why do we need Duke, North Carolina, and Kentucky to be to to be good for college basketball not to suck? Because they're the only teams that bring ratings. I'm a huge first of all, I'm not excited about a Baylor Gonzaga national team. No one is, but that's what we're gonna get. But don't be surprised if Mark Few or Scott Drew mess this up because that's what Mark Few and Scott Drew do every March is mess up teams that should be in the final four. But look, I it was a couple of years of the Zion year. At Duke, and everyone knows, like I'm, I'm the black Duke fan. Super I'm a big Duke fan, so I wrote, I wrote yeah. about it in my autobiography. I love Duke basketball. Yeah. You, you are, you are. I am an old school. I cried when they and we write my my sister and re- recounts this story, and I write about it in my book. But I cried when we lost our 18 point lead to, uh, to Kentucky. Uh, in the NCAA tournament, 98. That that broke my heart. I, I thought you were going to bring up 02. No, I, I still talk about. Uh, I still I talk to Grant Hill about this too, so he understands my pain. But go yeah. ahead. I, I, why, why why is college basketball so terrible? Oh, it's 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 a, a laundry list of reasons. But that Zion year, I went back and I looked at all of the TV ratings for Final Fours and National Championship games, going back to like the late seventies and early eighties. If you want to see the highest ranked Final Fours. Duke has been in all of them. <laughs> the team right under that has been Kentucky or Carolina. And I tell people all the time, look, upsets are sexy that first weekend. When you see a UVA finally is the first one to lose with 16 or a two seed or a three seed drop. It's fun. It's hilarious. You can make all the jokes, the gifts. Kids are crying. But when it gets to the final four, and there are multiple years of a Butler, a George Mason, and a VCU there. No one watches. Like, it's been two years since we had one, but go look up the numbers from that Texas Tech UVA National Championship game. It was mm-hmm. terrible. <laughs> and that's what happens. Like, we are a society that wants the upsets, but we also want the Blue Bloods to be there because those are the teams and the coaches and the colors and the fan bases that we know. Like, that's who we expect just to be at the party. So when they're not there, you have to remember college basketball, as much as me and you love it, it is a casual sport. It's the only sport that owns an entire month, which is March, but it's the only sport where people only really pay attention except for March. So they can fill out their bracket. You know, they can gamble at their office pool, but people haven't filled out a bracket in two years. We haven't seen a tournament in two years. So when those casual fans show up, they're going to be like, all right, who are these players? Who are these teams? I haven't done this in a while. Also, I'm catching up to speed, and everyone's telling me that everybody sucks. Why is Gonzaga undefeated? And who was Baylor? I thought that was a football school with a rape allegation problem. But they're the second-best team in the country. And you're like, all right, where's Duke? Oh, they're not ranked? Their best player just opted out? Oh, okay, where's Kentucky? They don't have 10 wins? Okay, what's going on here? Where's Carolina? Oh, they suck too. And they had 19 losses last year, and they weren't going to make last year's tournament. Where's Kansas? They're not in the top 25. Where's Michigan State and Tom Izzo? Oh, they're not ranked, and they sub two. 
then what's the point of being here? And that's what's going to happen. This shit with March Madness is what's the point of being here? Those teams aren't there. It's going to be weird because they've moved the schedule, which people don't know yet. It's not going to be the first Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, like it always is. They bumped the schedule up one day, which is going to be off. It's in a pandemic. It's mm-hmm. all in one state. There would be no cheerleaders or bands in the stadium if there's a buzzer beater where people run on the floor. It's just going to be really, really weird. And I don't know how this is going to look or feel, but the NCAA has to do it because this is the one event that pays all of their bills. So it's definitely going to happen. But I do want everybody to know, Iowa, in my opinion, legit has the best basketball player in the country, uh, Luca Garza. Now, I don't know how he's going to translate into the NBA because he's a bit slow. You'll see him lumber. You'll see him lumber. He's 6'11", 270. But the boy could play college basketball. You know, some people ain't meant for the NBA. He could play college basketball. You weren't a big fan of McCore Maker going to Howard or blue chip athletes generally going to HBCUs. I do think you're wrong about this, but I'm going to let you explain yourself here. Why shouldn't we want athletes like him playing at places like Howard? And I'm, a, I'm not going to use Howard as the example to push back on why I think you're wrong, but I want you to be able to talk about this first. It's, I'm not against it. I was against that because that wasn't going to help us. It's in the same way I feel about Deion Sanders at Jackson State. Yo, I was, that was my next question, so go ahead and answer that. But we'll get to that because Deion Sanders at Jackson State is going to be a flaming disappointment and it's going to be a huge setback to one of arguably the most historic football program in HBCU history. Gremlin has something to say about yeah, that, but go but, ahead. But, but you know, you know <laughs> yeah. when you can roll out a, a sweetness, you got something to say. Yeah, oh, you got something to say, yeah. Uh, but yes, roll back the tape because in two to three years, you can go back to this to this show and be like, oh, he called it. But it wasn't anything about Maker Maker or it wasn't a shot at Howard. It was when you looked at the recipe, like this wasn't going to make some good cornbread. Like it wasn't going to be sweet. It was going to be nasty. It wasn't going to rise in the oven. It was just going to be terrible. This was a guy who was automatically looked at as being the savior of HBCU sports, which was unfair to him. Mm -hmm. Two, he wasn't that good. And if you had seen him play, you understood that three, this was a program with a second year coach that had just came off a four and 29 season. This was also a program that hadn't been to the NCAA tournament since the nineties when you had North Carolina central, which has a whole docu-series on ESPN right now. So that was going to be my, that's my pushback to you. I'm yeah. like, you know, if, if that's where if, he was supposed to go. If he, if really he, could, wanted to if, if he went to North Carolina central, North Carolina central is a 20 and, Three, four team. Yes. And they are going to the NCAA tournament. Again, and I would venture to say, time. for the fifth time, I would venture to say that they probably win both games on, on the first weekend. I Listen. And especially in this year, in, the, in yeah. a year like this. You wouldn't get an argument for me. And that was the thing. Everybody made this about what it's going to do for HBCUs. And I was like, well, the dude y'all said was a savior for this didn't even go to the right HBCUs. Look, well, I'm, all, that makes sense. I'm all for HBCUs getting the Zions. I just understand that there's a process to get us there. And everybody thought this was some instantaneous, oh, you just, you just pour the water with the sugar in a Kool-Aid packet and you get this tasty drink. Nah, this is like bourbon. It's got to age for a while before you get something to come out of that crate. We need, first of all, you look at a program like NCCU. Let's take them as the prototype. You start with getting a three-star. 
and then you do well and you're and you're on ESPN plus ESPN three and then maybe you get a four star and then maybe you get a five star. So now you have a proven track record. Of, Lo and behold, you know, let me if you get two, three stars at the same time, though, exactly. you might be now special. you have a proven track record or not only do we win, we can coach, we can get you to the league because that means the school itself is going to change. Now everybody has meal plans because we know how this goes on the HBCU campus. Now you have 24-7 access to a gym, even if you don't have a practice facility. Now you're not riding a bus everywhere to go play non-conference games, mm-hmm. and you're on there 14, 18 hours a day eating Bojangles. Read the piece by my boy Myron Metcalf from ESPN, who spent a week with North Carolina Central on the road and all that they go through when you want five-star athletes to come to HBCUs and ride on the bus and Bojangles, you're not talking about that when their boys is at Duke and Kentucky with private chefs flying first class five-star yep. and you're going to look around and be like, why am I doing this? You want me to take the hit yep. <laughs> and I'm not getting paid. This doesn't make sense. That's why you have to build a program through resources, through the spotlight that, I mean, that makes NCC is getting now. Cause that makes sense because I always said – and let me ask you this question. Just a couple more questions before I get you out of here. I'm thankful for your time today. But along the same lines, why when NC State – by the way, they did make a good hire. But NC State, North Carolina, Duke, will they look at a Lavelle Moton to be the next head coach? Not Duke because that's just – you know, that, that's, that's whoever Coach K picks – well, I mean, I, okay. Like All right. So, so, I mean, that's probably going to, that, that may be, that may be, that may be Jeff Capel or yeah. somebody along those lines. I think it's Jeff Capel. I think that deal has been done for years. Or Bobby but Hurley. But if you're Carolina and you're NC State, I don't know why you haven't picked He's the best coach in the research, right? And not named Coach K. I mean, and I mean, Roy Williams is a great coach. Don't get me wrong. But he's, he's right up there with them. So let's talk about Jackson State. Tell me why Jackson State, other than, what I believe you perceive to be some maybe recruiting issues that may go on down the road. By the way, did you see his transfer portal? I mean, he got he got some legit players in the transfer yeah. portal. Talk yes, to me about why you think this is going to be a failure. Okay, he got players. Answer this question. I'm going to ask you a question that no one's been able to answer. I don't know if he can coach. Why don't we know that? Because he's never coached before. On any level of what? Of anything. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, I can. I don't even need to. You don't even have to ask me the question. I know yeah. the, <laughs> no one's talking about this. Y'all went and got a dude who's who was one of the best football players of all time, who's really great at TV. He's really great at self promotion. But let's go through the laundry list of Deion Sanders working with kids. He had a school called Prime Prep that was so terrible. He got fired. Hired. Fired again and rehired, and the school went down in flames. It got shut down, and kids who went to that school had their lives destroyed because if they got scholarships to go to different schools, their credits were messed up, and some of them lost a lot of their scholarships. Go read Candace Buckner's story from the Washington Post about it um, because she talked to some of these players. For instance, I remember Prime Prep had a different – uh, change the name. I think it changed to like API for a while. We remember Emmanuel Moutier. He went oh, overseas yeah. to play more. He went he to Prime Prep. Because he went to SMU for a minute, right? Yeah, but, but where did he come from? Prime Prep. Um, Duke fan. Trayvon Duvall. Remember him? Before he went to IMG for his last year, he was at API, which was kind of like a rebranding of Prime Prep. 
he was the number one point guard in the country at one time, but he didn't have a lot of great offers until he transferred to IMG and then Duke and Kentucky and came this came calling. Why? Because his transcripts and everything was so jacked up because he was coming from prime prep and API and all of that stuff. And then we look at Dion, where he was at his next stop. He was an assistant. Uh, he was a, the offensive coordinator at a high school. They played in some parochial league. The school got kicked out the league. Oh, I saw that. They won state championships too. They were on probation. (laughs) Like, there were so many violations. They got kicked out the league. It's like if, if in South Carolina, what is the South Carolina High School Athletic Association? South Carolina High School League, yeah. That's like if Ober got kicked out of that. We, because we probably, your coaches probably, of your football program we probably should have been kicked out. <laughs> so now you're telling me that guy with this history is running a Division One football program at an HBCU who we know they're not going to have the full compliance staff of a Clemson of Alabama. And this dude is supposed to run a well- Oil machine program <laughs> that's not going to have compliance issues because that's what people forget. Compliance issues are the one that get you all the time. Oh, that's what I mean. But not only that, but I mean, like, look, Dion ain't winning the SWAT. Not in year Ex- one, two, exactly. or, or probably three. So I don't know what they're thinking about. Look, let me let me let you get out of here. I got I got one more question for you because I know you're busy and and you got things to do. I just want people to know how can people follow your work, follow the things that you're doing. You're one of the best writers out right now. And I say that being in journalism right now, I see it. You, Even if I disagree with you, I can never say that your pieces are not well put together and well researched. So shout out to you for that. But how can people follow you? Where are you now? Where are you going to be? Talk to them about the future of Karen Phillips. <laughs> Karen Phillips. Uh, but you can follow me on Twitter, at Karen J. Phillips. Um, writing at this, been catch me on the assortment of different podcasts or media appearances, wherever you got your own podcast. You got your own, po- hey, I know. I shit, Karn <laughs> Phillips. I might not be able to get this to run. Uh, <laughs> uh you know, um, I, I do have a podcast, but we, we don't necessarily do sports. Uh, me and my co host, Naeem Cocker, but we don't love hiatus right now. We do more of, uh, you know, pop culture, music, TV, stuff that's in the news. Um, so it, it, it's my way to talk about other things besides sports. So it, it gives me a breather there. But yeah, I'm around. I'm on the internet. I will block you if you talk crazy in my mentions. Because uh, look, when you write about race, you get enough people talking crazy in your mentions. So, you know, it's just easier to just block you and keep going about my day. Um, but go. I'm always around, brother. Thank you, Karn. It's a pleasure to be with you today, man. Thank you for spending some time with me, man. I appreciate you. Before I let you go, I wanted to make sure y'all didn't miss the emerging public beef between y'all's former president and Mitch McConnell. In case you missed it last week, we should play hit him up in the background. When the Senate voted to acquit the former president, Mitch called Trump a disgrace, but he couldn't bring himself to voting to convict him. And apparently, y'all's boy got in his feelings and issued a statement about Mitch. Here's my favorite part. Mitch is a dour, sullen, and unsmiling political hack. And if Republican senators are going to stay with him, they will not win again, Trump said in the statement. He will never do what needs to be done or what is right for our country. Where necessary and appropriate, I will back primary rivals who espouse Make America Great Again and our policy of America first. We want brilliant, strong, thoughtful, and compassionate leadership. 
Guys, you love to see it. I love to see Donald Trump tear the GOP apart and elect Republicans in primaries that will lose in general elections. I welcome this Republican civil war with open arms. But let's also keep this in perspective. This same fractured Republican Party won far more seats in the House than we expected in 2020, had record turnout last year, and has a base that is galvanized to elect more extreme Republicans, which leaves deeply conservative places like my home state of South Carolina and even places like Florida and other parts of the country as being vulnerable to people like South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem. And as we've seen with COVID, when you have a bad governor and a bad governor leads our state, people from those states travel and they can affect people in states with not so bad governors. Quite simple. So while I celebrate the Mitch Trump beef and Republicans are losing everywhere, let's all remain mindful of the dangers of a completely dysfunctional party led by extremists, which is unfortunately where we are now with the Republican Party. But you know what, guys? That ain't my problem to fix. Good luck to my Republican friends. And that's that on that. We'll see you on Monday.